Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. You might notice that uh, this is Lorian and not Meg because it is just me today. The universe is upside down. Lorian opened the show. That's okay. It's... You know what? We're keeping things fresh. So many of you guys loved the um, one-on-one career interview we did with Meg just kind of as a chance to dive into life pre-podcast and kind of uh, getting to know Meg better. So we're going to do the same thing with Lorian today. And personally, I am very excited for us. Uh, But first, we're going to dive into our weeks or what we call uh, adventures in screenwriting. And to continue the upside down universe of it, Meg, I mean, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Meg's not here, Lorian. Meg's not here. It's just us. Jeff. Jeff, why don't you share your week first? Sure. I will share my week. I'm going to mostly share last week. Um, but so we had a Cinestory retreat that I went to. It was my first in-person retreat since the pandemic. And Cinestory is an important part of our podcast journey. For those of you who don't know, Cinestory is a great screenwriting fellowship slash lab slash, I don't know exactly know how to describe it, but it's a very cool nonprofit that mentors up and coming writers who submit material and mentors such as Jeff and Lorian and Meg um, meet with those writers and have like kind of long, I would don't even want to say note sessions. I want to say emotional unpackings as to what they've written and how, you know, these mentors can get those writers closer to the material that they really, I think is in their heart. So cinema stories, are, I don't know if I explained that very well, but luckily we will be having Lee Sansar tour on the podcast next week to talk about both cinema story and more importantly, contests, labs, fellowships, residencies, what they are, what the differences are and how we can kind of look for red flags and parse through them. But I can say Cinestory is a great one. Um, but I was in the mountains last week with writers and Lorian, I had my first like in-person experience meeting screenwriting life fans. And it was very interesting. I'm excited to talk with you about what that was like for you because on one hand, of course I was so flattered and it was so wonderful to meet like-minded people. And because of the tone that you and Meg have set on the show, there's a great correlation between screenwriting life fans and wonderful, warm people that I want to be friends with anyway. But the imposter syndrome was just insane. As people are coming up being like, we love the show. You're so great on it. First of all, I wanted to be like, well, Meg and Lorian, like it's their show. I, <laughs> I sometimes talk on it. I fear I talk too much. Um, and thanks for listening, but we've tricked you. I'm a joke and I'm going to climb under this table right now. So I don't know. Did you, isn't that interesting? Same. I mean, how did you, what was your journey like at Austin meeting fans? It was uh, similar. Uh, Meg is so much more gracious about it than I am because <laughs> she understands that the experience is about the person being able to say to us, you know, I listen to the podcast that it's not about us, but I, um, struggled with that you know I of course want to be like it's not me I don't have anything to do with it I'm not Same. amazing or interesting or anything and I don't even know what it is that you're listening to you know so I try to um uh dismiss that I I'm working hard on focusing on it's not about me and my experience of getting that acknowledgement it's about the person being able to give it 
to be able to share their experience. Mm. But it is, it is strange. I think that all three of us are so accessible that I've had these experiences with people who are like, well, I feel like I know you and they just dive right in. <laughs> like there was one time Meg and I were walking through the Driscoll and this charming woman just sort of opened her arms and said, it's you. Like, and we were like, hi, like, oh my God, do we know you? Like, do we meet and forget who your name? But it, it was because there's just this um, openness. And right. so um, I, I love that you know, but it does create this sort of intimacy that, that is confusing sometimes for me where I'm like, wait, what do I actually like, have we met in person for and sure. I don't know who you are? Cause that happens all the time. And if I did that to you, I apologize. That's just uh, how my brain works. Um, but I will say the other thing about Cine story that's so great is that when you're a writer there, you get sort of what you're talking about, the sort of emotional unpacking you can write from, but you also get notes from, in addition to other writers from producers, managers, agents, sort of lots of people in the industry. So you get different perspectives on your work. So, you know, I'm a writer and I'm very into the emotional right. connection between the writer and the, and the content. So I focus on that, but then there are other people who are going to focus on what works in the market and, mm -hmm. you know, structure in a different way. Um, so I feel like that's um, really helpful. You get this really broad spectrum of experiences and then there's lots of time at Cine Story too, where you're just hanging out with other writers and mentors. And so it's not just like, these are the three people you get to talk to. Right. That it is sort of, it's just really fun. And um, my advice to anyone going to Cine Story is drink lots and lots and lots of water yes. and be, uh, it's, the altitude is weird. And if you are gonna drink alcohol, drink even more water because you get tired and dehydrated very quickly. And it's just a lot of energy output. Yes. You know, like being available. Who are these people? What am I supposed to do? You know, all of that stuff, you know, so, but that's it's all really, really advice. fun. That's, that's really smart advice. I probably should have stuck more to the drink more water, especially while drinking alcohol advice, but uh, <laughs> next year. Oh, I had one year that was particularly not amazing. So I <laughs> like to think I learned my lesson, but you know, I, that's just, I'm in a cycle, always in a cycle. Always in a cycle. Um, but it was yeah. just to speak to what you're saying, there's something so cool about that weekend because it is a chance when it's just a bunch of nerds in the best way who come together. And what's cool about Cine Story is the line between mentor and mentee is kind of blurred so that you all kind of feel like you're just in this wonderful ship together in the mountains. Um, and it feels very validating to just be surrounded by people who love this as much as you do. And um, yeah, it was, it's a great it's great practice to be thanked or acknowledged for your work because that's kind of part of the job. I mean, if we're serious about writing, our goal should be to make work that impacts people. And this podcast is something that we've created together and it's impacting people. So we have to get better at it because it's like we signed up for it. So it was really good practice. And such a good point yeah. because that also is really hard because it's so easy to say, oh, well, I didn't really do that or that was so-and-so or yeah, we had all these problems or this was really hard. Instead of just like acknowledging that the person doesn't want to hear about how hard it was or, right. you know, what you still don't like about it. Cause that takes away from their experience of the show or the movie, mm -hmm. you know, all they want to say is this was really important for me. And then it's our job to say, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm so glad. Right. That's what I was like. Thank you. Towards, like, yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. Like, you yeah. don't even have to say you're welcome. You can just say, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. That means a lot to me. 
you know. Yeah, it helps us keep going when we hear that stuff. So if I met you at Cinestory, all of you did a great job of being like classy, nice fans. And if there was any weirdness, I promise it was all me and my neuroses. So nice to meet you. <laughs> all right, Lauren, I want to hear about your week. Okay. Um, my week is uh, up and down, always up and down, driven by um, my daughter's blood sugar levels. Um, we are still managing all of that and trying to figure it out, like how to take her to karate class and mm. nighttime numbers and all that. So it's sort of a mirror of my life that I've always lived, right? Up and down. Mm-hmm. And so I am uh, dealing with a little bit of uh, adrenaline poisoning. So it makes it hard sometimes to sit down and focus because I'm always like on high alert. Yeah. So I try really hard to find pockets of time where I can get away from that. So I had a pitch on Monday. So I spent all the weekend before sort of preparing for that. Um, it, it came up really fast. And, you know, my manager was like, Hey, meet with this person. Um, so I did. And then they gave me a project to pitch on. And then I was like, I have a take. And then I, cause I wanted the meeting to happen quickly. I didn't want to spend three weeks working on a take. I wanted to get them a take in a week um, or else they'd move on to somebody else. Right. So I kept that urgency going. So I pitched in a week Great, and, um, uh, and it went really well. And, um, so I, then over the week I worked on like a deck, like here are my ideas for how it would look and who might, who might, how this might play and the tone and the world and all that, um, incorporating my pitch into their IP. And so we're going to work on it together. It'll be great. Um, so I'm hoping to turn that around rather quickly. The really amazing part about it is that I have been struggling since my kid's diagnosis of type one diabetes, in case anyone doesn't know that, that um, do I, can I still write? Do I still have that creative space in my head? Can I still slip into that stream that I need to get into? And I can, and I did, and I did it very quickly. And so it was very, um, validating like oh I still have my story mojo I can still do this and I taught a class and um it's it's a different kind of getting into it um also this week um I had a bunch of epiphanies about my life which is always like oh my god feelings are so gross (laughs) right like you know and then like oh I have to acknowledge this and look at it and like I can't just throw it away I have to you know and you're already emotionally exhausted enough. And now it's like, now I have to look at me, but I'm looking at my daughter, yeah. right? Like, yeah. So, but that's all it, it's all wrapped in and, you know, behavior and choices and management of crisis and trauma and all of that. So um, it's been good. It just, you know, is a lot, but it's helped me sort of redirect a lot of my energy around my career at large, mm-hmm. what it is I want to be doing and what's really important. All right. So having done adventures in screenwriting, um, as you all <laughs> know, I interviewed Meg a couple weeks ago. I'm going to jump into interviewing Lorian. So Lorian, a while ago, you mentioned on the show that like before your MFA, you sort of felt like your twenties were about exploring and figuring things out. And I was, I appreciate you sharing that because in some, so many ways, I feel like that. Like, I feel like I've been like, tangentially writing but more like shadow artisting or doing podcasting so like when when you brought that up like what did your 20s look like and what do you think like tipped the needle for you to go get your MFA? I graduated from college uh, when I was 21 and I had big plans to go uh, to get my MFA. I had applications. I had, I knew where I wanted to go. I'd chosen Irvine. I have no idea why I was looking at the Irvine MFA program. I don't even remember. Um, but 
I also was a broke recent college grad and I needed to get a job. I was in the Bay Area and I found a place to live. It was very odd. It was like a house in Walnut Creek and another woman rented part of it and I rented the bedroom during the day. It was somebody's business, this little house. And during the night, it was like our apartment. So it was like a very odd, very cheap way to live. I got a job in San Francisco um, working for a container leasing company. It was like my first corporate job. I, I, I got very good at 10 key. Um, and I just sort of, I just fell into that. Like I had money, I could pay my rent. I, um, I don't even remember if I had health insurance or not, but because I grew up uh, not having any money for me, having stability was the most important thing, a job, place to live, food, and maybe health insurance. I can't remember, but like those, it was survival for me. Um, and my, I kept talking about, I'm going to go to school to study writing. I wasn't writing because, you know, I was in my early twenties and I had a boyfriend and he was obnoxious and, you know, it just, um, I just sort of lost, I got stuck in this place of being able to take care of myself and I didn't feel stuck. I know I had this longing to be doing something, but I had no idea how to do it, which is so strange because my whole life leading up to that, I was very resourceful. I got stuff done, you know, oh, I need this thing. I'd go figure out how to do it. But there's something about, I was just, I had an, a degree in English literature and performing arts. Like, eh, what am I gonna do with that, right? It's a liberal arts degree. You get a job in an office, you know? Um, I. I I don't know. I just remember that time as being about survival and being with my friends and going out on Friday nights and Saturday nights and Sunday nights and mm -hmm. spending money on beer. And I just got lost in being young and in my twenties in San Francisco, you know, that I moved in with my friends in San Francisco to the coldest flat in the entire city. Um, we used to open the windows in the winter to warm it up. Uh, yeah. And then I think I, <laughs> I was dating this other guy who was also obnoxious, I have a pattern, uh, in my mid-20s. And he broke up with me because I didn't have a really a real job because I decided to pursue acting. So I was working in a restaurant and I wasn't going on auditions. So I had these dreams, but I wasn't able, I was afraid or um, I don't really know what was going on. Eventually I applied to um, NYU, the Gallatin program where you sort of design your own program but it was messy. I was unfocused. Like, am I going to be a teacher? Am I going to be an actress? Am I going to be a writer? And big surprise, I did not get in. Um, but yeah, I had this, I knew I wanted to go to school. I, I, there was a big pressure in my family too, to, to get your master's degree, to get your PhD. Um, and I uh, just, and you know, I knew I had to pay for it myself and I was broke, <laughs> you know? So it was this, I was just sort of living, but there was no dream or goal. It was just so unfocused. Um, I couldn't grab a hold of it. Do you think though, because I relate to that. I mean, I've been doing like production related jobs, like production adjacent jobs through my 20s, because I sort of have that same. For me, it's not as much stability, but it's the chance to go home and tell my family or my parents, friends, like, this is my job. This is the thing I do. Do you think like there was any tension between you knowing that diving into being a writer might push you away from like having like a job job as someone who is seeking stability or no? No, I just knew I had to have a job. You mm -hmm. have to have a job. You have to be able to take care of yourself right. because fundamentally there's no one to ask for help was, was how I, my point of view. And um, 
yeah, I had to take care of myself. And I don't even think being a, a screenwriter was not on my radar at all. That wasn't a thing. My whole life has been about trying to figure out where the creative center is. And at that time, I thought it was acting. I thought the actor was the creative center, um, which is why I was always acting in high school and in college and why I started doing community theater, um, you know, my, my mid to late 20s, that uh, I thought it was the actor. Um, and I realized later it was the playwright, right? And then uh, I started thinking about TV and I was like, oh, it's TV, mm -hmm. right? I don't know, I read some article or talked to someone and they were like, in TV, the head writer, the person who creates the show is the boss of everything. So it's right. sort of like the, the person over the writer and the director and the actors and everything. And I was like, that took me on a long journey. Um, so for me, it was always about trying to find the creative center. It was not so much about um, being afraid to be a writer. It was, I have to have a job. Mm -hmm. I have to have income and security because if you don't have that, there's no one to catch you. I had no safety net. Right. There's no one I could go to and say, cover my rent or I have to go to the doctor or, you know, I need a new pair of pants. Like it was me, mm -hmm. whether that was, I mean, I, yes, that's, that's, but that's the point of view I've had my whole life. Mm -hmm. I have to take care of myself no matter what. Mm -hmm. And now yeah. I have a family. So, so there's more. <laughs> Yeah, there's more. Um, so, okay, you went to your MFA for playwriting. Yes. Just for those who don't know, like, what does a playwriting MFA program look like? I mean, a lot of us have considered grad school for writing. I've never done it, but it's always kind of been in the back of my mind. What was your experience and what did the program look like? So I knew at the time that it was a self-indulgent thing. I like being in school. I like class. I like a structure. I like classmates. I like having relationships with the professors where, you know, it's a give and take and you can learn things, right? Because it's always all about the teacher. Teachers make or break our educational experience, right? And I went to the same school that I got my undergrad in. So I knew what the environment was. Um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. No, all good. I just, just went back. I went of... right back to grad school <laughs> and I was in the hall and I was like, what? Um, uh, in I terms knew of what it was the a program looked like, thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, this was not a, a thing where I was like, this is gonna launch my career. This is, I've been taking care of myself for the last eight years. I, I need something, who am I, right? I'd taken some poetry classes and I, I was like, I, I need to figure out what it is I'm supposed to be doing, my purpose. And I think it's this. Um, so the program was, you know, we had, uh, we would take, I mean, it was classes, right? So it'd be like uh, four classes, I think, a semester. There'd be like one writing class where a guest professor would come and, and do, you know, you'd write plays, you'd do scene work, you'd work with your uh, classmates. There would be a class where we would read plays and talk about them and guest playwrights would come and, and talk, with that, talk with us about their work. So that was a really cool opportunity. Uh, there was, um, I think there were also like grad level literature classes where we were reading, you know, it was like write essays, seminar style. Um, and then there was a class where we would go to theater and we would see plays. Um, so, you know, in January one year, they do a Jan term class at the school. So be all of January, there's one class and it was a Sundance class where you get to go to Sundance and it was only offered for undergrad. And I was like, or I also get to go. <laughs> 
So I convinced them, I was like, this is, I'm doing this. (laughs) Um, And then at the end of the program, you write a thesis play and uh, there's, you find actors and directors. So there was only fiction writing, playwriting and poetry. There was no uh, matched sort of director or actor program. So I had to find all those people on my own in the city. So I had to hold auditions, interview people, find my crew. And then uh, I got to, my play was put up at a theater. Uh, got to see my name in lights. It was very cool. It was like Tinderbox by Lorian Rifkin. That was my maiden name. And um, it was very, very cool. And um, it was a one act. Of course, it was very dark because I think everyone's thesis play is just like pure lava, right? <laughs> and after everyone came up to me and was like, are you okay? Like as if <laughs> the play were about me because right. it was so dark. And I was like, I'm fine. That, that emotionally it's about me, but like, that's not the facts of my life, of course. you know? So that was really interesting. But I've been getting that my whole life, like acting, you know, people would be like, wow, you know, you're so dark. And I'd be like, hi, thanks for coming to the show, you know, so. <laughs> well, I'm sure like the play this- was funny no. though, too. I feel like from what I know of you and your voice, it feels like comedy always kind of shows up, but maybe not in this play. This particular work, no, I was not writing. I mean, it was, I, I read it. I recently found it in a box in the garage and I read it and I was like, oh my God, so dark. <laughs> what was wrong with this girl? Like, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it makes sense that you that you were doing that because it is kind of like show running. Like, I feel like those instincts that you love in terms of television and assembling a team and creating something that's through your voice, there is something that feels like a parallel show running when you put up a production on stage. Yes, but what I learned is that the director needs to be the one interacting with the actors. So I was not directing it. I did not want to. Um, so the director would go to the actors and then come back to me and then we would talk. If the actors had questions, they would ask the director, which is the structure in TV as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, for me, that was amazing because when you write a script and then you give it to actors and a director, it comes to life in a whole totally different way. Mm -hmm. It was magic for me to see that happening. Just magic. Um, I felt like I was, you know, adding something to the world whether it was people would get mad about it or feel sorry for me or whatever it was, it provoked an emotional response in people. And that for me was just the most thrilling thing. You know, I felt like a real person. Yeah, it's valid. I felt like I, I, but like more than just, like I was doing something that only I could be doing, writing that play, which for me has always been very important, Um, right? And I was also working full time um, and planning my wedding and you know having friends uh and as someone with ADD it was probably the most thrilling time of my life mm-hmm. I was busy every single second <laughs> that's a fun season yeah uh, yeah I, I feel like I've heard you talk about like essentially starting a theater company is that true mm-hmm. can you speak to I yeah. think that is so cool and as someone who just like did a feature on a shoestring I kind of would love to hear your journey putting together a company like that So one of the professors, one of the guest playwriting professors um, pulled me aside once and told me that I just didn't have it. And that if there was anything else I could do other than playwriting or theater, that that's what I should be doing. And in the past, I'd listened to, especially women, tell me things about myself and I believed them. But 
this particular woman I had no respect for because she would show up late all the time. She, I didn't feel like she gave good notes. So I thought like, what was the last play you produced? Was it 10 years ago? Like, I just felt like, who are you to tell me who I am and am not? And I just totally ignored her. And um, she, she added nothing. She took away from the program for me. Um, and, you know, at the end, I, you know, you're asked to do a, um, a what's it called? Like a summary, like a, your opinion of how the program was. And exactly. I created, yeah, I created a bill back to the school of how much I had paid for that class, how many times she was late, how many classes she'd missed. I added it all up and submitted a bill back to the college. This is how much you owe me for that professor not being in class. <laughs> that is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. It, because that's so how great. dare you, Absolutely. right? How dare you tell anybody that? If anybody tells you that, like, how dare they? No one else defines you and no one else defines me at all. And thank God I did not listen to her. But that was my very petty, mean uh, revenge was to, you know, and instead of just complaining about her, I created a bill. Um, it's amazing. So one of the amazing guest professors we had was Octavio Solis, who's a really uh, brilliant playwright. And so the other three graduates of my class really missed being together and writing together. So we and asked him if he would lead weekly workshops for us. Um, so we found a space in the mission. We paid, I don't know, like $25 a month for it or something. They gave it to us. Um, and then we paid Octavio $25 a week, uh, which is nothing. And he would come and he would lead these writing workshops for us once a week. And it was like, that was the purest I've ever felt as a writer, like being able to do that and then read out loud and share and process with those other writers. And we did that for a long time. And eventually we realized we had all this work and what were we gonna do with it? And it's really hard. Like the, the San Francisco playwriting theater scene is really hard, um, just like theater's hard everywhere. So we were like, well, no one's gonna put our work up. We'll do it ourselves. So we formed a 501c3. Uh, I raised, we raised a bunch of money. Uh, we found theaters that we put and we found directors and actors and we had we put up a couple of plays we had did you, press did, you like we did a whole thing what's that did you act in any of them oh no um i either you know was a writer on the ones that were mine and then i was a producer on the ones that were not mine okay uh, no no acting i felt like that was that would have muddied it for me yeah that makes sense you would have muddied it um, but yeah, it was called Guilty Theater, and my husband drew the logo, and our tagline was, pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, how great. It was very fun. It was very fun. But you know, then we all got very busy with lives and jobs, and uh, you know, we were in business for a couple of years. It was great. Cool. It was great. Yeah. So I want to jump back quickly. You mentioned like having the self-assurance to just no to say fuck you to this professor. And I kind of feel like as writers, we have to have at least a kernel of that or we'll never make it because whether it's as explicit as that professor was or as subtle as your parents or whoever who are telling you you can't do it, you need that to survive. So like, do yeah. you have anything inside? Like, where do you think that comes from? And like, do you have advice for our writers who like to just kind of nurture that muscle to just be like, no, I can do it. I define who I am. Well, for me, it came from external validation. So I took this poetry class and the teacher loved my writing, loved it. 
right? Would spend time with me, would, would write notes on it. She was the one that said, your writing's rather dramatic. Have you considered playwriting? And I was like, yeah, I used to write, I took playwriting classes in college. And she's like, you should consider getting an MFA. And then I got enough positive feedback from other professors, including Octavio, who, who I felt like I had something and what it was was voice, right? I had a unique way to write and tell a story. Structurally, I was probably a disaster, right? Like, ah, we didn't really learn structure in the three-act structure. That I learned that at Pixar later. Um, but fundamentally, that's not true. Fundamentally, there's a rhythm to storytelling, but not as succinct as screenwriting, three-act structure in a feature film, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think it was that I'd gotten enough validation and positive feedback from people I did respect that when this voice came out, I was like, you're lying. Or if I choose to listen to you, all the work I've done up till now is invalidated and I choose not to be invalidated. Um, I don't remember, but I remember the moment. I remember where I was sitting. I remember the chair I was sitting on and how uncomfortable it was and hard. And I remember her telling this to me. And I had a moment where I was like, oh no. And then I just thought, nah. Like it hurt my feelings that someone would say this to me and it hurt my self-esteem and it hurt my sense of self. But I was feeling so good about myself and the rest of my life. I had this wonderful, you know, fiance who loved me. I was planning my wedding. Um, my family was supportive. I, I, you know, I, my job, even though I was working from 7am to 3pm and then going to grad school from four to you know, eight. And then I was directing a play also in the, in the evenings. Like I just felt so full of creativity and um, power really that I have the space to say, no, thanks. Yeah. Um, I struggle with that in other places in my life since then, where I feel that there's an empty space and I am open then I'm vulnerable to feedback like that. But at that mm -hmm. point in my life, I was not open. I felt engaged with who I was in all the aspects of myself. That's so interesting. I mean, I feel like the takeaway or a takeaway, there's never a concrete thing, but like you probably, if you're an artist and you're trying to pursue it as a career, you need at least one person to tell you you're great. I think like it could be a writer's group or a partner that you work with or someone who just loves your work because I find it's hard for myself sometimes to look at my work, even if I love it, and feel like it's good enough. I don't know. But I do think if someone else tells me they love my work, it can be helpful. Yeah, and I think too, this is why Meg and I give the advice to have lots of projects going and not, what I'm working on right now is not belaboring things. Um, because then you get, then it, then you start to doubt, right? So this pitch I did, I came up with in a couple of days and it was good enough. I liked it. I believed in it. I had a lot of fun. The more like, I was like, okay, my deadline is Monday. It's Saturday night at 2 AM. I'm doing it. Okay. That doesn't work. I slept on it. The next day I woke, worked on it again. Having that, just the belief that I can do it gives me the confidence to know that like today, when I get off this, I'm going to go do something else, mm. right? You just need one thing that you feel good about. The trick is when you're getting rejected over and over and over. So to have one thing or one person, but I think it's it's about the person validating you, but it's also knowing and believing in yourself that you can, and that's active, not from something in the past. Mm. So that like working on something you love and believe in and will fight for, whether anyone's read it or bought it or will validate you, but like, I believe in this and this is me being myself. 
this is me in my purpose. This is me and my truth. Um, you know, you have to, that is the key, I think, because for me, just being able to come up with that pitch so quickly made me feel powerful again, made me feel like, oh, I, I, this is who I am. I do this thing that's magic. Yeah. Right. So someone can come at me and say, oh, here's some notes on this. And I'll be like, all right, but I know I have the magic to fix it rather than no, 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 that could beat you down, but you have to figure out how to grab a hold of that magic that you have within you mm. um, and just hold on to it. And I think that's why you need to be working on lots of things. Which one is the most magic that you can sort of grab onto and sort of steal yourself, put that on like armor, right? Like how Samantha B wears the, the little jacket, that's her armor. Yeah. So what is it that gives you that armor so that you can, you know, that's is so it putting nice. on mascara? Is it putting deodorant on? Is it wearing a special bracelet? What embodies that magic that you're going to wear, put on, do that gives you the power to know that other people don't get to decide who you are? Hmm. I think it's so important. What I'm stealing right now from what you're saying is like not living in your past work because even like, so right now I'm in the rejection mode on the feature, which is fine. Something's going to work out with it, but like you very smartly, when we got on this podcast, the first thing you do is like, Jeff, are you writing? What are you working on? Because you know, I will fall into a hole unless I have something to look forward to. That's not just this one thing. So it's such, you just articulated that really well. And I think that's valuable for me to hear. So thank you for sharing. Um, okay. This so is why I think it's good to like take a class or find someone to write with or read somebody else and they read you. And you can just say too, when you give someone your work, I really just want to know what you like about it. Mm -hmm. One thing, just tell me one thing you like about it. I think we're hungry to hear what's wrong with it so we can beat ourselves up, but you can give someone your script and say, what do you like about this? I need this right now. That's okay. That's and then the right person will be like, I loved this. Mm -hmm. And then you have something to hold on to in that, that work. You and know. I will say for our writers who might be feeling like you don't have that, this isn't just me selling the podcast. I've, the Screenwriting Life um, Facebook group is like a miraculous place to go to find this. And there are people who are hungry for sort of buddies in the journey. So even if it's not, even if you don't find the right person right away, like joining the Slack is a great way to like find people um, if you haven't. So it is, it is pretty cool what, what's going on over there. Um, totally. So you mentioned, you've told the story on Jen Lowndes podcast about like your journey into Pixar, but I thought it was just so valuable that anyone who hasn't heard it, I think like you talking about taking that risk, letting go of teaching opportunities to quote, step down because you knew you had an opportunity in front of you. I just love that story. And I'd love for you to tell it again <laughs> on the show, if you wouldn't mind. I feel like I've told the story like a thousand times. So I'm going to try to get it right. So Great. I think a theme in my life has always been, I say no to the thing. And then like, I really don't want it. Like legitimately no. And then I end up doing it and it's the best thing for me. Uh, this has been pr pretty consistent, uh, but I can't fake it. I can't be like, no, I don't want that. You know, it has to be like, that's the thing I don't want and will never do. And then it's exactly what I'm doing. So uh, I was, you know, had my theater company and I was writing and I was working as an executive assistant to the chief financial officer at United Behavioral Health you know, in a tall building in San Francisco. And, you know, we had to wear long skirts and closed toed shoes, you know, or slacks, you know, it was a very conservative environment. A lot of hard and, clothes, you know, as was, you say, 
Hard pants. Hard clothes. A lot of hard clothes. Yeah, except this was the early 2000s, so it was a lot of gabardine lined and tailor stuff. Okay. Um, nice. Uh, and uh, it was fine. I had health insurance. I had. I was making good money. My husband and I bought a house. Like we were, we were doing okay. And then my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, not cancer. It was a benign tumor, but he needed brain surgery and my life stopped. I was still working, but you know, I stopped writing. I stopped doing anything because the brain surgery went a little wonky. And then he ended up being home for quite a while and recovering and had, we had lots of doctor's appointments and it was a, a hard for years. Um, and then I just got to this crisis point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. What about me? I've lost myself completely. And because I have issues with boundaries. <laughs> um, so I uh, quit my job, bought a yellow Mini Cooper because here's my reasoning for buying this yellow car. I wanted to be able to walk out into a parking lot and see a spot of happy. And then I knew it was my happy and that I would go get in that car and I would be happy in my car right? If nowhere else, it was my escape. And, uh, and I started teaching, I started scrabbling together a teaching career. Um, you know, I would call private schools in the area and be like, do you need a drama teacher? Do you need a writing coach? And so I, I started teaching at um, my alma mater in the theater and um, English departments. I would just call my old professors and be like, hey, can I co-teach a class with you and do you have a class you're not going to teach that I could teach as an adjunct you know so I sort of cobbled this together for myself I started acting again um and I was like this is it I'm going to be a professor um I found my place again so I do really do legitimately love teaching uh there's something so amazing when you're talking to someone and you're you're processing something, something and you see that spark in their eye, like they get it, like they've learned something and the world opens up for them in a different way. And they start asking different kinds of questions. It's just really, really exciting. And uh, I was in a play, God, I don't even remember what play it was, Sisters Rosenzweig maybe, uh, or Marvin's Room. Uh, I was in a play with um, uh, this woman and she worked at Pixar and uh, she said, you know, there's a there's a part-time temp job at Pixar. Um, you know, a, a, an intern is going on vacation for six weeks, so we need someone to fill in for her on Fridays. It's $10 an hour. And I was like, oh God, no. No, like I'm a professor and I think I was writing again. I, I'm a playwright and how dare you? I was in my thirties, you know, not how dare you, but like, I, I've got it worked out. I don't need your your Pixar temp job. And um, uh I'd also had a full-time teaching job that I'd just been offered at a private school to be the English honors teacher and run the drama department and direct the spring and fall plays, like a big, big job. Uh, but it was what I'd been working toward. I'd been fighting to get a full-time teaching job. And I went home and told my husband about the Pixar thing. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. And, and he was like, um, go to Pixar and take this job because he loves animation. Cause it was again, that like, no. And then, so I did, I was like, okay, it's $10 an hour. You know, I go to Pixar and look at cool stuff. And so I was, you know, in the consumer department, consumer products department, you know, rolling posters, <laughs> literally physically rolling posters and putting them in tubes, you know, um, delivering canisters of things to different people. And, um, and then the, the school wanted an answer. Are you going to, when are you going to start? you know, school's coming up, when are you gonna start? We want you to start in the fall or, and uh, I just had this 
really intense moment because I really liked being at Pixar. I like the people, I like the energy, the building is beautiful. Um, I don't know, there was something about it where I felt really comfortable there. And, you know, I was still a temp. There was no, you know, job offer. There was no job opportunities and nothing. And I remember standing in someone's office using their phone and I was on the phone with the school and I was like, I'm, and I had this pit in my stomach. It felt like, like bricks were stacking up in there. And I said, thank you so much for the offer, but I'm, I'm not going to take the job. And they were mad, you know, they were disappointed. But as soon as I said that, like the bricks went away and, and I was like, okay, I did it. I got nothing. I got nothing again. Right. I quit my job and then worked so hard to create this opportunity for myself and I got it. And then I said no to it until I was like, okay, so my career right now is working on Fridays for $10 an hour, you know, at Pixar. And I got more temp opportunities, you know, like an executive assistant, an assistant went out. And so they would pull me in to do it. And, and then eventually I, um, they were like, Hey, there's a director's assistant available. Do you want, do you want to interview? And I was like, no, I've been an assistant. I don't want to be an assistant. No. And then it was like, okay, well, you know, I'll go meet, I'll go meet them, you know? And then I got the job. Yeah. So one thing I'm always curious about, and your Pixar journey is longer, and I want to talk about other roles you had at the company, but one thing I'm always wondering is like when you're working in a production adjacent office, like you are working at a cool production company, or even you're a creative exec or an assistant or whatever, because a lot of our listeners probably are, did you, did you ever like hint or share that you're also a writer? How did you toe that line? And what's your kind of philosophy on what we should, how we should brand or bill ourselves if we're in an office where we're doing something adjacent to exactly what we want to do. I don't know if this question makes sense or if you have thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, I didn't talk about it unless I was asked directly Okay. because I wasn't trying to do anything. I had no agenda. I was just there. Like I remember once I was making copies and someone came up and was like, Hey, so what's your story? And I was like, Oh, I'm filling in for this temp. And she's like, no, 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 before Pixar. And I was like, Oh, well, I was a I used to be a playwright and actor and I really like theater and I used to teach. That was it. Right. And then, you know, they had my resume. So it had that I had my MFA and that I had a theater company and, you know, all that, you know, it was people knew, I didn't feel like I had to do a campaign or anything. Right. If anyone asked, I would tell the truth. Um, but I was never thinking I would be a writer at Pixar. That system is much different. They right. hire writers from the outside. Um, and I didn't even know how animation production worked. I didn't even know if there was a place for someone with like writing skills or like, I had no idea how anything worked. So I just sort of tried to be cool. Like mm -hmm. I'm making copies right now. That's and what I'm doing. Your job too. And just whatever your job was, be great at it. Like, I think that's a great way to speak yeah. to your- I made the copies. I was great right. at it, right? I think yeah. it jammed, I fixed it, you know, like, yeah. but it was all very casual. I wasn't on a campaign. Of course, every culture is different. Um, some people don't want to hear that you were doing anything, right. you know, um, but I never made it a thing that was interesting. People knew, you know, sure. but- and if they wanted to ask me about it, I would talk about it, but you know, and you know, once I started working there and I saw how things worked and, oh, here's the departments I might be interested in. And, you know, I'm sure I made tons of mistakes, but everybody does, you right. know, but I didn't, I didn't worry about branding myself. 
I think in the back of my mind, I thought I was still going to go back and teach, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. for some reason being there, I didn't feel at those beginning years, I didn't feel panicked to put my brand on anything. I was just, I would show up. I was on time every day or early. I figured out how you were supposed to dress, which is not high heels, by the way. And uh, it's very casual. Um, and I just sort of went with the flow. Mm-hmm. Although keep in mind, yeah. keep in mind, this was in the you know mid 2000s at Pixar Animation Studios, not in Hollywood, right? So it's a totally different culture. Everything was different. You know, this is a place where when you get hired, you're a full-time employee. You work there. It is not about moving, you know, companies from a year to a year and trying to maximize. It's like, that's your coworkers. That is where you work. That's it. Right. There's no like, yeah, there's no like networking with other animation people or it's like, it's it. It's in Emeryville, California, right? It's disconnected from Hollywood and Hollywood system. So I, the thing that's so interesting to me about this story is like you, you felt in your gut that like you needed to be there and you knew so much that you said no to this other job, but you didn't exactly know what the destination was. And I think like that feels very brave and interesting to me because like, I don't know if I would have had the fortitude or self-assurance to say yes to something without like the five-year plan. Like, was that something that you were considering or? It was out of character for me. Like I said, in my, you know, I'm very like, what's the job? Where's my money coming from? Planning ahead. But there's something about my husband getting sick like that and realizing that I can continue to do what I'm doing, which is working at this job that is not fulfilling creatively. I mean, I was good at it and I, it was fine. I'm not going to disparage that job. It was a good job and I'm glad I had it, but because it was health insurance (laughs) for my husband's brain surgery, which newsflash, very expensive, you know? (laughs) Um, But I just got to this point where it was like, who am I and what am I doing? I cannot live my life in service of fear and allowing myself to be stuck in tar, right? Um, I was miserable, you know, miserable uh, at home, taking care of him. He was miserable. And we both needed, I needed him to go back to work, to re-engage, like we'd done everything we could. And I needed to figure out who I was again. So it, it wasn't so much about some brave leap. It was desperation. I have to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. It's not what I'm doing. So if I keep doing this, I'll just keep doing this forever. So I've done this a couple of times in my life. I've taken these huge leaps and it's always something out of like trauma, right? Mm -hmm. It's never like I come to this beautiful epiphany and I make this wise choice. It's like, oh my God, what's happening? This is not right. Um, But I lose myself. I lost myself and I had to go figure out where I was hiding. And maybe it was at Pixar. And I had the support of my husband. He didn't want me to take that teaching job either because he's like, right. I'll never see you. And, you know, I got advice from another teacher friend who was like, who said like, that's a massive teaching job and you're a first year teacher and you're gonna be taking on so much. Mm-hmm. So part of it was even like, can I even do that job? Right. You know, am I setting myself up for some like crazy life where I'm never home and working and terrified all the time? Or I'll work at Pixar as a temp. <laughs> so there's a part of it too that maybe wasn't like this big, brave, bold move and I'm so powerful. Part of it probably was like, well, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. This is what's on the table. 
when I think about like another, like I think of show running as such an exciting additional chapter, but I don't know. Do you feel like there's any like important beats or exciting career moments for you that I'm missing? Like as you've kind of explored this, I mean, obviously the podcast. I, don't I know, think anytime someone question. says yes to me, it's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I think um, I've had lots of ups and downs. I, it's hard for me to remember any right now because it feels like just a big weird blurry blur sort of ups you know when I get paid to write something mm-hmm. is a career high mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what it is or how big or how small whether it's like this four minute VR theme park thing I wrote you know or rewriting an animation script or you know selling a show and negotiating Oh, I think it is. You know what it is? It's it's negotiating. It's when my lawyer and the business affairs department and that part is very exciting. It's when when offers come in, mm-hmm. you know, people, oh, somebody wants to buy it, you know, and then the negotiations start and you get to, you know, because when you negotiate a show, it's not just how much you're going to get paid for the pilot. You negotiate what you might be making if the show goes to series. So you get to kind of live in this like, oh, I'll make this much money per episode and oh, the back end and the bonus if it goes to season two. So it's like this additional like fantasy story, right? And then of course, you know, either does or doesn't go when you don't get any of that. But for a while you're like, I'm gonna make this much money per episode. And you know, it just, it's so, it's like this fantasy world that isn't real, you know but you still have to take it all very seriously. You know, your lawyer takes it very seriously. Like, here's what the MAGR is. And I'm like, what's a MAGR? I don't know, I still haven't figured it out. Something about points <laughs> and back end. And I'm like, great, how much can we get? Make it more, you know? And, you yeah. know, sort of trusting your reps. I just think it's, that part's a career high. I think for sure when you're in that. Um, I'll let you know that my next career high will be when my series gets greenlit right. to go, you know, to go to, uh, you know, series when my show gets greenlit. So that's what I'm waiting for. Well, I, you know, I can't wait to watch your show. I, I feel this, I feel so privileged to have just been able to work so closely with you and Meg and like, thank you so much for sharing what you shared today. I just think like, whether or not you feel like it, there were so many valuable takeaways for me and just like moments of your story that even, even in my early thirties, I identify with and feel grateful to have learned from. So thank you. Um, and Thank you for saying that. Yeah. That, see? You did it. You did it. (laughs) (laughs) That means a lot to me. Well, that wasn't sincere. I'll work on the sincerity later. No, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. And I mean, basically my story is messy. Mm -hmm. Like it's messy. I'm messy and my story is messy and it's easy to look back and find like through lines and narrative and stuff. But like, there's so much in it that's like, I don't know. Why did I make that decision, you know, or, you know, the jobs I had, I worked for a medical research company for a while. I don't know what that was writing grants for medical research. I was like, this is not okay. You were writing. (laughs) I was writing grants about something I had no idea, or it was a medical (laughs) device company or something. I don't know. I did that for two months. You know, I hustle. I'm a Um, hustler. Yeah. Well, in the interest of, um, Keeping continuity, yeah. this big surprise guest when Meg got interviewed by me was that we brought in her son, Aiden, to ask some questions. And in continuing that tradition, your daughter, who's now a YouTube star herself, Quincy, we would love to bring her on if she's ready to ask you some questions. Uh, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, YouTube star and daughter of Lori McKenna, Quincy McKenna. Hi. 
Do you want to ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. What is your favorite thing about being a writer? My favorite thing about being a writer is that I get to make up worlds that other people can experience and uh, be in with me. How does being a mom help you as a writer? How does being a mom help me being a writer? Um, well, it helps me prioritize my time in a different way so that I can make sure to spend enough time with you and Papa and the dog and with my writing. It also helps me be a better communicator because I need to be able to let the family know when I have to go write. So that's really helpful too. What is a time in your writing career that you felt most scared? I think I feel a little bit scared all the time, but the most scared I felt was at the very beginning when I committed to being a full-time screenwriter um, after I sold that show. And I realized that what my life was gonna be was not what I had been used to, which is stability and being able to count on things. So I knew it was gonna be a little up and down. What is one piece of advice that you would give to all the writers that listen to this show? One piece of advice that I would give to all the writers that listen to the show is write. Just write. Even if it's writing a grocery list of pretend things you might wanna buy, one sentence about how you're feeling that day, just get into the practice of making sure to write down thoughts, dreams, lists, fantasies, just because that's so important. Just like how you do your YouTube video every day, right? Because then you know, oh, I have to do it every day. But once you stop doing it, like if you don't do it for one day, you might not do it for two days or three days and then a whole week's gone by, right? So every day, write in some way, for sure. You Thank you, other, Quincy. Any other questions for no. me? No. Thanks, Quincy. Quincy McKenna, everybody. Thanks everyone for listening to the show and indulging me today. You know, one of my favorite things to do is talk about myself. So thank you, Jeff, for interviewing me. Your questions were great. And you can follow us on Instagram at the screenwriting life with an underscore between the and screenwriting and life. And you can join our Facebook group for more support and conversation. And you can also submit questions to the show by emailing us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com. And I'm really excited about next week. We talked about CineStory a bit. Um, we have board member and kind of CineStory guru, Lisan Sartora on the show. She's a writer as well. She's a wonderful writer. And she'll be here to talk about fellowships, labs, contests, retreats, and residencies. I'm super curious because sometimes I get confused as to what's what when it comes to those. And she'll kind of talk about red flags and how to suss out the good from the bad. So she'll... She's an expert in that, and I'm excited to learn from her. And remember, you are not alone, and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community, and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife, or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.